boys and ghouls, and welcome to an episode a long time in the making. All about the classiest of the classic monsters, that man from Transylvania, Dracula. Listen closely as we follow this fiend from the Bram Stoker novel of 1897 to the 1931 Universal film directed by Todd Browning and the relatively recently unearthed Spanish version that was filmed entirely at night. This will be Boys and Ghouls episode number 75. Our previous episode, Night of the Living Dead, was misidentified as 78. Please forgive our eagerness but it was only episode 74. Mea culpa. Now, protect yourself with a wreath of garlic. Take a crucifix for your mother's sake. And have some wine. Or don't. As we present the first of two boys and ghouls episodes. All about... Dracula. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing but dead folks. I want to kill you. The undead. You ever talk to a corpse? Satan is our pal. It's boring. on kind of pattern. I've got it. Marshall, let's, uh, will you clink with me? Sure. We're going to have to count of three this. Okay, ready? Okay. One, two, three. Oh, that's great. Okay. That's good. We got it. We got it. I was doing one of those. Oh, okay. So, uh, do you have any spooky gab? Your cat? It's not elaborate, but it is good. Okay. I, two nights ago... Oh. Had a nightmare about Freddy Krueger. Wow! I know. Of, of all the uh, the slashers to have a nightmare about, that one's the most apropos. It is, and I really don't remember details. I just remember waking up, being like, "Oh my god, I just had a scary dream," and Freddy Krueger was in it, and it wasn't like uh, a dream, and he just popped up and was like, "Hey, kids, how's it going?" Okay. It was he was after me, which is awesome. <laughs> Do you have any spooky gab? Well, it has been a while since we've uh, we've spoken, and it's been a, the longest time ever between podcast episodes. Unfortunately, the days of us getting them out once a month on the 13th are uh, well behind us. We'll get back on track one of these days. Yeah. It's fine. If it comes out on the 13th, it's probably a coincidence. It, it just <laughs> happens to be the 13th. But we're favoring uh, quality over quantity. We don't want to let the uh, quality of Boys and Ghouls dip too far. By rushing one out. So, uh, especially with this episode's topic of Dracula, you really want to get it right. However, since we last recorded, we both went back 
home to our home states. I was uh, there for a while, and after a while, started getting into like a lot of the stuff. I just left in my parents' home, which is... Yeah, you sent me a lot of pictures. Yeah. So uh, this book here is something that was in my parents' home. Oh. It's like a easy reader <laughs> uh, version of Dracula. Wow. It's... Which I bought from... at a gift shop. Wow. Well, this is less... I guess it is an easy reader, but it's no little golden book. Yeah. I mean, people die. Also... I think. Jonathan Harker is a stone cold stud muffin. Yeah, I think yeah, these were illustrated in the eighties, so he's a little hairy, thick necked, hairy gentleman. I think um, he looks like um, Tom Selleck. Yes, this guy's a real man's man. Wow, hello, that's very cool. Yeah. Also, between my junior and senior year of high school, I went into the city for a couple of weeks. And took some classes. I recall. At the University of the Not Arts. Not that I said that like I was there. I wasn't there, but I remember you telling me that. And uh, one of the classes I took was special effects makeup. And I, I still had like my kit with like a bald cap and spirit gum and um, fake hair. Yeah, the uh, your face cast or whatever looks just like you. Yes, I had my face casted. A cast made of my face. Mm -hmm. And it's the same technology as, as what they use for death masks. And it's just my face at 17, which was a few years ago. <laughs> but also included was, uh, for making scars, mortician's wax. And you might say, well, that's just the name of the wax, right? You know, it's not all necessarily manufactured for morticians. And I'm going to say this stuff was. Oh, I believe it. Because while I'm sure in the 20 plus years that it's been... In my basement in Pennsylvania. Marshall, you're dating yourself. It lost its scent, but so now it smells like the modeling clay because it was just a giant hunk of modeling clay. What did it smell like before? In this kit, massively perfumed. Everything in the kit smelled like this perfume. Huh. It's been in a plastic baggie since the 90s. Oh my God. Nope, just smells like modeling clay. Oh, okay. It, it turned modeling clay one out in the end. I was afraid you were going to open it up, take a big whiff, and then immediately pass out. But here you go. This is the... Um, touch it. It's... Ooh. That is what morticians... Oh, my God. <laughs> ...will use, like, if there's, like, a, a divot. Yep. It is... Uh, oh, my God. Kind of the color of Band-Aids. That's sort of a mostly white flesh color. Uh-huh. And what, what you do is you would put this on someone's skin the texture is really uh, what's important here because mm -hmm. uh, it's very pliable and sticks to the skin yeah yeah without a lot of uh, a lot of fuss and then you just mold it into whatever you want which in the case of a mortician would be to look like a normal face mm -hmm. because you know something's gone wrong or sunk in or right. whatever challenge a mortician has whereas on the opposite end your special effects people want to make a face look uh, ghastly or cut up or get wounded. Yeah. So the same stuff would uh would help with that. That's uh. Um, I wound up throwing most of it away. I've still got the uh, the cast of myself at seventeen, so I will continue to age, and it will remain young. <laughs> and uh, I saved this in the plastic baggie. So wow. Yeah, I thought you'd get a kick out of that. Wow, that's pretty cool. There you go. It was a really strong perfume smell. That's interesting. Yeah. And that's why I figured it really was from rotations because it's combating uh, Maybe. someone's decomposition. Maybe. Know. I mean, if they've been embalmed, they're not really 
decomping. I think you're fighting the clock. Yeah, probably. No matter what. Yeah. Might as well give it up. You're the one who's worked at a cemetery, not me, Marshall. So everything was sealed up by the time they came to me. But all right. Yeah, that'll make me the expert. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Take that one. Point to Marshall. I don't know how to say her name in a Hungarian accent. Cut. Yeah. Blue, blah, blah. I think you need a few words to sort of get well, the ups you know, and downs. My full name is Catherine. Catherine. There it there is. We go. Marshall. Ah, you need a couple of syllables to and, go up and, and down. And R to roll. You know, I came across a clip and I meant to send it to you of Mila Kunis on Who's the Scottish Guy? Craig Ferguson. They're talking about accents, and she makes a comment about how, like, every accent she tries to do comes out the same way. And then they get into a whole joking back and forth about how funny it would be for there to be a Spanish Dracula. And I was screaming at YouTube, like, but there is! Your dreams have been realized! And they just, they'll never know, unless someone tells them. Did you read the comment section of that No. I'm sure it's nothing but, like, (laughs) there was a Spanish Dracula in 1931. You're both dumb. (laughs) Yeah. I heard about the Spanish Dracula while I was working in a video store, and I think that was when it became available on DVD, and it was like a big deal. I heard about the Spanish Dracula from you. When? I don't know. Just at some point? Sometime in the 10 years I've known you. Okay. But beyond the shadow of a doubt, I remember you saying, Kat, did you know that they filmed a Spanish language version of Dracula on the same sets at night while they were filming the English language version. And I was like, no, Marshall, I didn't. And this is like, I don't know, probably a few years ago. Tell me more. Even better. Let's record me telling you more. And that's how the podcast was born. <laughs> Not quite. No. Um, hey, folks. I, I think we're, we're both sort of like putting it off just because it's such a huge topic where we're really on the edge of the diving board here before jumping into Dracula. It's intimidating. Episode 75, by the way. And a monumental topic for a monumental episode. Yeah, and because we, we've covered all, all manner of, of things, including stuff about vampires and Dracula, has been name-checked a few times on, on this show, but to actually take on that biggest of of horror topics, I'd say. Definitely one of the oldest uh, in a few ways. You know, The Legend of Vampires and the movie that is Dracula. That's really mostly what what started it all in a lot of ways. You know, you can look back to Dracula as uh, the the studio is saying like, oh, this works. Let's do it again. Mm -hmm. Let's do it some more. Let's have a son of Dracula, a daughter of Dracula. And let's let's do crossovers. Yeah, let's let him meet somebody. And, you know, you get further and further. Um, This is going to be a two-part episode. The first one, we are going to follow Dracula from the novel through the plays. I don't really know that much about them. Except that they led to the 1931 Bela Lugosi Universal Studios Dracula. And, filmed at the same time, the Spanish Dracula. Part two will be recorded at a future date and released at an even more future date. 
And that'll cover the legacy of Dracula and any future Draculas Cat and I want to check out and comment on and check off our list if we've never seen them before or Draculas that we enjoy, we'll revisit and come back and uh, yak about it. Yeah, so essentially with this episode, we're going to lay sort of a baseline framework. It's a primer, if you will. I learned not that long ago that it's not a primer, it's a primer. That's how you say that word. And we learned it's not Bella, it's Bela. It's Bela. Because we may not get the facts right. Yeah. And if we get nothing else right, I want to get Bela right. Yeah. Bela Lugosi. We'll do our best with the facts, but at the very least, we'll honor the king of all vampires. Of all vampires. So, Bram Stoker's Dracula was published in 1897. Dracula is an epistolary novel. That's a novel that is written as a series of documents. Carrie is another novel like that. Some novels would just have an epistolary introduction. Sure. Yes, but a full epistolary novel is one which is truly nothing but but newspaper entries, diary entries, things like that. Which I think would make the reader of yesteryear make it feel a little more real. I feel like we've touched on the idea that it's sort of like early found footage. You know what I mean? In in written form. Um, And by the way, Bram, short for Abraham. And he was a Bram Stoker Jr. And then he named Van Helsing Abraham. That's right. And in his book, he's got two Jonathans. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I think, like, yeah, that is how life works. Who's the other one? That's Dr. Seward's first name. Oh, that's right! Yeah. I didn't think about that. It, also, it, importantly, I think this is, like, one of the most important things to mention that I learned during my research mm-hmm. is that Bram Stoker is a total babe. Well, I... A very handsome man, and I did not know that until I looked him up for this podcast, and I was like, oh my goodness. That explains a little bit. a handsome guy. Because him and Oscar Wilde both courted the same woman. Yes, they did. And when they sort of, like, describe the woman, they never leave out that she was a hottie boom body. I think she's a honey. Can I take us back to his childhood for one moment? His sickly childhood? (laughs) Yes. He was bedridden with an unknown illness until he started school at the age of seven when he made a complete recovery. He said, quote, I was naturally thoughtful and the leisure of long illness gave opportunity for many thoughts which were fruitful according to their kind in later years. Do you know who else we've talked about on this podcast who also was very sick as a young person and went on to create great things? Lovecraft? Wes Craven. Martin Scorsese? Wes Craven. There's a long list of very sure. creative. I and Wes Craven. wanted to talk about Wes Craven. That's all. That was the first thing that popped into my head. Sure. He won a medal for heroism in 1881 for an unsuccessful attempt to rescue a suicide that jumped into the River Thames. Oof. Would he have gotten a better medal if if he'd managed to save the guy? I was think it's like, the jump in that counts. Thanks for trying, bud. Here's a medal. Sure. Okay. He was a civil servant for a while and then got swept up by the theater. He became he won, prominent in the world of theater. Went to work for the Lyceum Theater, specifically for... Henry Irving. Henry Irving. Who was the, as I read it, most famous actor of his time. And he owned the Lyceum Theater. Yeah. So Stoker was a real behind-the-scenes guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think took care of some of the business end. and Yeah, it says he managed the theater. He was a theater manager. But he probably wore many hats. And then uh, took pen to paper. And it surprised me that he didn't just write a play. Because he probably could have gotten plays produced 
for the stage easier than get them published. Yes, I think they're different beasts and sometimes people aren't as interested in writing a play as they are a novel. And yet I believe that he believed that he could get it made into a play, which is what he tried to do. After he wrote it, he held a famously disastrous reading that lasted for five hours. Didn't someone storm out and say, dreadful? The guy who runs the Lyceum. That's right. Oh, Henry Irving. Henry Mm -hmm. Irving was like, dreadful. Yeah. And just dashed all of his hopes of Dracula having like a a good stage run, which it did later after his death. Right. After Bram Stoker's death. Dracula and his wives, they take the form of wolves and bats. They leave their coffins at night. And they feed on the blood of the living. Dracula was more of like a pointed-toothed monster. He was never attractive. He was never suave. And he did not interact with anybody after the Transylvania scenes. Oh, indeed. You're saying in the book, yes. The idea, I think if you polled anyone on the street today, I think people would probably describe Dracula and or vampires, Mm. which all kind of descend from the image of Dracula as being charming and sophisticated and sexy and luring you in but what you're saying is that's not you know he could in put the, the book, whammy on ladies he could for sure but it wasn't with like his suaveness right that's right in the book so in the book the first big chunk of it is jonathan harker going to transylvania he's described as a solicitor Yes. Which means he's a... Lawyer. Okay. But specifically, he's dealing with real estate in this instance. Yeah, he's helping this guy get all of his affairs in order. Right. For his big move to London. And eventually realizes he can't leave and suspects that, like, the guy who his host is, who is this kind of old Eastern European guy with unappealing features, is actually, like, a kind of monster and he can't leave. Later, the monster... Count Dracula leaves without him and traps him there in the castle, goes to London and starts raising heck. I'm off to London, England. Once he goes to London, you don't have any more scenes with him except for like one. He's always seen at a distance or in the fog or like I had a nightmare of two glowing eyes and you know it's him. Mm -hmm. But except for when he first he goes after Lucy and then he goes after Mina and when they put it together, oh my gosh, he's going for Mina. They storm into Mina's room, and that's when they see him, and that's when they have a little exchange, like a face-to-face talk. He flees, and they spend the rest of the book chasing him, and he's always kept at arm's length after that. So he only gets, like, one scene. Yeah. I didn't think about that. You're right. In the plays, now he's not some distant wraith. He's well-mannered and in your home, and that sort of horror of manners. It's like, this guy's a monster. I don't want to be rude. I can't <laughs> yeah. just say, are you a monster? <laughs> That's right. I had a frightful dream a few nights ago. And I don't seem to be able to get it out of my mind. I hope you haven't taken my stories too seriously. Stories? Yes. In my humble effort to amuse your fiancé, Mr. Harker, I was telling her some rather grim tales of my far-off country. When he's found out as a vampire, he still goes, Excuse me, I must be going. I dislike mirrors. Van Helsing will explain. (laughs) So even though he's been found out as a monster, he's still like keeping to high society manners. Mm -hmm. So that's got to be the biggest change from like the book to the plays, plays to the movie. 
Now, at the time, mesmerists mm-hmm. and hypnotists as part of stage magicianry was very popular. So his look, which we now think of as the Dracula look. The cape. The cape, the tuxedo, and the posture was an extension of stage magicians. You reminded me of something that I saw in a documentary you sent me about how on stage they had a trick coffin, you know, with a bottom that came out. Yeah, there was like stage special effects. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So he would like disappear. Yeah. Basically. I think the first big part is horror. Are you talking about the book or are you talking about... The book. Okay. And then the middle still maintains some horror, but... Much like Jaws, I feel like the second half is adventure. Oh, certainly. Now, unlike Jaws, that's where the metaphor falls apart. There's a bit of sleuthing involved. Because mm. they're going to find Dracula by tracking his boxes of earth from his native land. So really, they're just looking for his boxes for a while. Yeah. Where, where you find the boxes, you find Dracula. But th- there's a bit of like London sleuthery. Right. I mean, there's so much and all of time scenes, given to mm. like... What you were saying about propriety, like when they know they need to go break into his house in yeah. London, they're like, oh, Jonathan, you mustn't go. It will look untoward because you're a solicitor. And, you know, if we do it, we can yeah. cry ignorance. But, but the other man's a lord. He's like, well, I have my lordship to fall right. back There's on. a whole long discussion no about who should go break into the house and when, what time and why and yeah. who should be there and why they should or shouldn't. Um, and, and you know who's in it also? An American. Stop. A Texan. Oh, Quincy Morris. A cowboy. A cowboy. He's a straight shooter. Away out west in Texas, that's where I long to be. If you've ever read the first Sherlock Holmes mystery. I haven't. A huge chunk of that is actually like an old west tale. They capture like the guy who's done it. And it's like, tell us why you did it. And he's like, well, it all started back in Utah. (laughs) 20 years ago. And there's this just giant chunk about a real cowboying kind of adventure because that's what's sold. The American exoticism. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to uh, have horror, but with adventure, you're going to throw in a Texan. Yes. I have always enjoyed that Quincy Morris character as the anomaly he is, but I, I guess I didn't think about the element of um, well, hey there, adventure Lucy. it adds to it. He's so charming. Yeah. You feel so bad for him because you like want him to get the girl. Oh, and then he dies at the end. He's Spoiler. the only one that dies oh, of the main crew. It hurts. He's Let's... such a valiant American. Let's tiptoe back, though, to the more horrific part, which is, is also... This is a horror podcast, right? It is, yeah. yeah. Now, for the, the Bela Lugosi, Universal Studios, 1931, version, it's Renfield that goes, because he's considered to be the more interesting character by the screenwriters. So why not just have him go through all the motions of Jonathan Harker in the mm-hmm. beginning? Jonathan Harker does show up later without, like, a ton to do. He doesn't have the motivations that he would have had if he had spent a few weeks in Castle Dracula. But the guy who you were following goes mad as a hatter. Yep. For the rest of the film. Flies? Flies? Poor puny things. Who wants to eat flies? You do, you loony. Can I also say, in the book, Renfield is such a uh, robust character. Like, he's so sympathetic and, yeah. you know, by the end, you just like, I remember when I and started the book. a total bo- bystander to this whole thing. Right. He was never a solicitor. He never got sent somewhere and driven mad. He was already an unbalanced guy who was just geographically close to where 
Dracula was setting up shop and just like a radio just got Dracula's signals. I just felt so deeply for him in the novel and spent so much time with him in the novel. And by the end of it, he has these moments of clarity and you just feel, I just feel for him. And then I turn on the movie and I'm like, this is not my Renfield. Um, I enjoy the movie very much, but hashtag not my Renfield. It's a really different Renfield. It's, It's a different lots of things. Lucy does not have multiple suitors. Yeah, that stuff's not there in the movie. Well, because also what's not there is the chase back to Castle Dracula. But then if Dracula were a vampire, he'd have to return every night to Transylvania. And that's impossible. Then he must have brought his native soil with him. Boxes of it. Boxes of earth large enough for him to rest in. So in the book, once they've destroyed enough boxes of earth, Dracula skips town and they're like, not so fast, buddy. And they go after him and everything ends back at Castle Dracula. And they're like comes full circle. tapping into his brain via, via Lucy. M- I mean, Mina. 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 Yeah, yeah, there's all that stuff. Because they're like psychically connected. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. This was the Depression. There are a lot of corners that got cut. Mm-hmm. And instead of making a cross-nation trip for the climax, they all that was important, I think, for that story was to go after Dracula on his home turf. So the climax takes place at Carfax Abbey, which it's basically the same sets as Castle Dracula. This place is old and cobwebby and the tomb area. That's got to be the same set, like the exact same set. Sure. Now that they did build those giant staircase just for the Abbey scene, that's original to the Abbey, but it would not have looked out of place in Castle Dracula. But... Going back, 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 back. I keep like going further away, and it's like, okay, let's go back to the very beginning. Yeah. Here, which, be it Renfield or be it Jonathan Harker, it's still like a guy in over his head, but he doesn't realize it yet. Mm-hmm. Traveling a great distance to get to the home of Count Dracula. And all the while, taking yeah. the time to set down in his diary the events of the day, including what he's eaten. He'll say, you know, I really had a very simple meal of chicken seasoned with this stuff called paprika. Yeah. How, how exotic. Yeah, I love how delighted he was with his food. But this is the kind of, if you've never read the novel, you... you it starts as like a travelogue. Yeah. And he's like, oh, the mountains are really nice and the people look like this. And then he gets a little further east and he's like, no, the people are kind of like this and the mountains are kind of like this. And then he gets a little more further east and he's like, I told them I need to go to Count Dracula and they all started crossing themselves. Right. Castle Dracula? Yes, that's where I'm going. To the castle. Yeah. No, you mustn't go there. So first of all, if you've never read it, I do think it's worth a read, but there are long sequences that I I do think ultimately really are necessary to sort of put you in that place in time, but it goes on quite a bit about, you know, the setting and whatever. But I do love how matter of fact, to your point about, you know, I mentioned I was going to Castle Dracula and they immediately started crossing themselves and I hadn't the foggiest clue what... There's that element of sort of that condescending, like, white British man who just sort of thinks, oh, these are simple, superstitious folk, yeah. you know, with their strange ways. Like, I'm, I'm really a Church of England, but I'll, I'll take your crucifix if it'll shut you up. Exactly. And I think that also speaks to something that isn't terribly heavy-handed, but if I were teaching a high school class uh-huh. about this book, I would definitely bring up the whole religion versus science thing and how one thing that makes the Dracula stuff so scary in the novel is that you have a scientist who is, I'm speaking of yeah. Dr. Van Helsing, and of course, you know, Dr. Seward. Seward. But you have these men of medicine who are respected scientists who are 
to varying degrees accepting that these kinds of things exist. And it makes it that much more scary to go like, these are people who adhere to reason, but they're experiencing this, so it must be real. Which is very scary. But Professor Van Helsing, modern medical science does not admit of such a creature. The vampires are pure myth, superstition. I may be able to bring you proof that the superstition of yesterday can become the scientific reality of today. But you were saying it's like a travelogue. Yeah, it's not like a um, like a variety show sketch where he just shows up, you know, to a giant door. Knock, knock. And is like, hello there. Is a Count Dracula at home? Right. Hey, can you open up? It's raining out here. Yeah, it's like a long journey to get there. Yeah, literally. And a frightening one. This is very old wine. I hope you will like it. Aren't you drinking? I never drink. Why? In the movie, he gets there and there's a little rigmarole. Of like, I'm going to move to London. And he goes, I've chartered a ship for us. It leaves tomorrow. So there's like one meal. I never drink wine. And then... I never drink wine. Right? (laughs) I laughed out loud at that. Um, Then he encounters Dracula's brides. And next time we see him, he's a madman. (laughs) In the book where it's Jonathan Hawker. There are several meals that he has, and how it's long like, is he there? He's there he's for, for weeks, a, yeah, maybe months, a long time. And what I really, really want to get at is Dracula's insistence that like all of his servants just aren't in the room at the time. He's like, "Oh, my, you just missed him. I've got all these servants." <laughs> he keeps this up for a long time. The first bit of subterfuge is that he is the coachman. The coach from Count Dracula. There is a coach that reluctantly brings him to meet up with the coach from Castle Dracula. On Walpurgis Nacht. On Walpurgis Nacht. Vampires are at their most powerful. And he assumes the coach driving him back to the castle is a, a servant, a, a coach, coachman. A coachman from the castle. So it's like we meet Dracula, we meet Bailagosi. He's like got his three wives. They all rise out of their coffins. He doesn't say anything. And then the next time we see him, he's in disguise as the coachman. But he doesn't cover his face or anything. Yeah. And Nosferatu, which we haven't mentioned, came out just like an illegal version of Dracula that uh, Bram Stoker's widow had quashed, but Prince survived, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got a mask on. In the book, you can't see his face. In other, more sensible versions, you can't see his face. I'm glad he didn't try to talk. Yeah. Because it's like, really? Because you look and sound just like the guy who dropped me off. And it so reminds me of like when Scooby-Doo went to that amusement park and dick van dyke was running all of the rides because he didn't have any employees left so he was like the ticket taker and the strong man and like running the concessions what's a big star like him doing in a ticket booth selling tickets picture this because in addition to like preparing his meals he also like made his bed and stuff and he's like man i never see servants and then there is the one part of the book where he actually sees dracula like clearing the plates mm-hmm. and he's like oh there is no servants and the next time he sees dracula it's in the library 
and Dracula's literally like got his feet up on the couch reading a book about England. Mm-hmm. The juxtaposition between those two to me is pure sitcom, uh-huh. which is just like, I'm doing this thing in secret. Uh-oh, someone's coming. What do you do? You, you act you- natural, which means grab a book. Grab a book. I think Dracula probably had that book upside down because yeah. <laughs> we are following sitcom rules. Because that literal like, I'm just lounging. That's what you caught me doing. Right. I wasn't clearing the table. That's a servant's job. I don't know why would I be doing that. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, it's comical. And, and that goes on for a while. What I also found comical yeah. in the Bela Lugosi film, which obviously was not meant to be comical, but any instance where there's a bat on screen is funny. And in this movie, there are long sequences where there's just a bat flapping and there's no music and it just becomes funny to me. But also funny to me is when in the movie, Renfield is being taken by coach and he looks out the window uh, of the coach as it's moving and he sees no person at the helm, but there's a bat like leading the coach. Yes. And uh, I know it's not funny, like it's scary, but it's so funny to me. Yeah, like, like it's comical. Why be a bat then? I know. Are you going to do a better job in your coachman form? One would think. Now, one of the great set pieces is he does come to the castle, and the door opens by itself. In the Spanish version. There's more doors opening and shutting by themselves. Yes, and Renfield, like, looking shockedly at that, going yeah. like, Ugh. Like, that shouldn't be happening. Uh-huh. In the English version, they just don't draw as fine a point on it. I think, like, when they get to what I call the comfortable room, you can see one shutting, but it's already in motion when the shot starts, so you don't know if, like, Dracula just gave it a tap. Sure. Or something. But no, this is a haunted castle. This is Dracula's. For sure. Haunted Castle. And what a set piece that staircase is. It's beautiful. Castle Dracula is a really big space. It was the largest soundstage at Universal Studios. But it was made even larger by like a glass painting. I am Dracula. It's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and, well, and with all this, I, I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. And then he walks through a, a spider web. You, you don't see him walk through it, but when Renfield tries to follow him up, he's like, ah, I'm all caught up in the spider web. Mm-hmm. And out the window is three bats. And upon watching it again, I'm like, oh, those must be his wives. All the ladies. Yeah. Did you, did you also want to mention the line that is my favorite? Wait. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Oh, it's so creepy. Right? It's like, you know, uh, in London, we have pianos to make music. <laughs> <laughs> and the three wives... He doesn't take them with him. So is he with Lucy and then Mina just creating three London wives? <laughs> and the flower girl? Or she just dies? We never see her again. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Only one like, person knows that. Some people he's he drinks. Dead. Some people he converts. He converts Lucy. He's trying to convert Mina. And is he going to do like one more and quit? Or like what's his end game? Is it true love? I couldn't tell you, Marshall. Yeah. But that is what he gets up to. Join me now as we return to the fog-shrouded Borgo Pass 
and take a ride together along the road to Dracula. So, Marshall, you sent me a link to what I found to be the most valuable piece of research that I did for this. You said watch this, and it's a documentary called The Road to Dracula. It was made for the DVD release. Cannot recommend it enough to you if you're listening and you haven't seen it. It's on YouTube. It's only 35 minutes long, and I wish it were longer. It hits really all the points that I wish I could hit. And (laughs) it's hosted by... But my brain is going every direction. I couldn't believe my ears when it's introduced by... She says, I'm Carla Lemley, and my uncle, Carl Lemley. And I was like, what? And And she's a delight. She was the first uh, line in Dracula. Yes, she's she's the girl in the coach. And she lived to be 104 years old. She did? Yep, she uh, didn't die until 2014. Holy cow. Right? I'll have what she's having. Welcome to Transylvania. We're very happy that you're here. So glad you're here. And in this documentary, they were sure to point out that Bram Stoker was already writing Dracula when he discovered Vlad Tepish a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler. He just sort of layered that onto it as sort of yeah. set dressing it was like, Great, to the character he already created. He was, I think, angling towards like Austria. Mm-hmm. Then he read the book Land Beyond the Forest by Emily Gerard. Ooh. Which served as like a great bit of research material for Bram Stoker because he'd never been to Transylvania. He made it up, but he also researched a lot as far as like what there would be if you were to go on an excursion to Transylvania. Mm-hmm. His approach to this vampire tale was, let's take this ancient vampire and stick him in modern times. So it's hard to really picture right now because, what was it, 1897? Mm-hmm. That's as old to us as everything else now. But... That was considered modern because that was the present day. And it all just feels ancient to us. That's so funny. Yeah, like he's to he's us, not it's really like a fish out of water into our mind. Older. Yeah. He's still a fish out of water. He is, but to us, he's just old and they're old and it's all old. It's all just kind of, it's just all old. <laughs> and that's why there's so many things that we as a modern reader wouldn't really recognize as being modern. So like typewriters, shorthand. He mentions his Kodak. He's got like a box camera he wants to take a picture with. And I think the medical procedures, all the blood yeah. transfusions and stuff is very like, whoa, they're performing this like yeah. high tech thing. The field of psychology in general. Oh, yeah. It was probably pretty new. Yeah. Well, the hypnosis stuff, that's hypnosis all pretty newfangled. Yeah. There was just this detail where they would just come from Lucy's grave and the body wasn't there. So they went to a pub and it was full of bicyclists. And I'm like, that feels very modern. Uh So he's taking these old tropes of the castles and ancient things and ancient evils, and he's sticking them in a very modern setting, which to us doesn't really look modern anymore. First electricity, now telephones. Sometimes I feel as if I were living in an H.G. Wells novel. But Dracula has survived over 100 years as an icon. Mm -hmm. And why Dracula more than other things? This is the same speech I gave about Santa Claus on this podcast, and it is the malleability of Dracula that he's not stuck to one location. He's not stuck in the castle. He is, by definition, something that has gone to a second location. Mm -hmm. So now, it's been 100 years, 
you want to take them and stick them in New York City, 1976, you can. Could you direct me to where I might find a taxi? They ain't none. They scared to come up here after dark. Honky. Honky, eh? I am not a honky, I am Romanian. Dracula! For real? May I have some? You can have mine! I'll sink my teeth into... What? The delicious chocolatey marshmallows and Count Chocula cereal. You want to stick them on the front of a cereal box? You can. Yeah. He's made up of certain universal fears. But at the same time, you can take him and put him outside of his comfort zone, because that's the whole point of Dracula. Right. Ta-da! I'm with you. I got it. Yeah. I cracked the code. You did it. Dracula. That's it. For one who has not lived even a single lifetime, you are a wise man. So... The plays had some pretty successful runs, first in London, and it got rewritten for the stage and, you know, Suave Dracula and all that. And then for American audiences, it got rewritten again for some more mass appeal. And that's when Bela Lugosi, actor on the Hungarian stage, who had to flee when there was a regime change in his native land, fled to America. You could do worse. And now he's getting parts in uh, English-speaking plays. Some silent films, including one directed by one Todd Browning called The 13th Chair. So they knew each other from before Dracula. And then he gets cast as Dracula. And because he possesses that Eastern European suaveness they're looking for. He's well, built of it. In The Road to Dracula, the documentary, yeah. his son, yeah. Bela Lugosi Jr., yep. who is very handsome and looks like him, but also looks like Mel Brooks to me, like young Mel Brooks. Okay. I kept being like, oh, wow. Anyway, he says in the documentary, he's like, I think the ladies thought he oh, sure. was pretty charming to look at. Yeah. He felt like the women were coming to the plays to swoon over his dad. No small part of uh, the success of Dracula is owed to the ladies. Yeah. And I think that, like, we don't have to put too fine a point on it. Uh, oh, whoa. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> I do know. But certainly you could do a whole podcast about all the um, thematic imagery and, and sexual, sexual overtones and things in Dracula. But, like, you know, the very idea and of exchanging bodily fluids and sucking blood and all that is very sensual, um, even if it's not right on the nose. To a more repressed society. You know, yeah. In England... 1897 was a bit literally buttoned up yeah and it's not like american audiences were uh libertines just picture the girls who lost their minds for the beatles and now go back two generations mm -hmm. so that's right. where we were at so when someone comes into your bedroom to suck your blood mm -hmm. whoo yeah. clutch those pearls the women prefer the traditional monsters the women huh. the pure horror it both repels and attracts them on camera in the 1931 film, you mm -hmm. don't see Dracula, like, bite any women nope. on the neck. There are no fangs in Dracula, no right. pointed teeth. It's implied. In the Spanish version, you'll see the puncture marks. Mm -hmm. In the English version, they just talk about the puncture marks. You never see any kind of fangs out. You're not really sure kind of what happens after the cape goes up. I wonder on stage if there was any, like, wrapping a woman into a cape to signify I'm biting her or if any of that was how that was handled at all. Because know, sometimes stuff played, on stage pretty was... well in film. Yeah. When Mina goes out to him, like, out on the lawn, and he just, like, takes the cape with, like, one arm and just, like, does that wrap around. Mm-hmm. You know? 
Classic. And yeah, literally classic. Literally classic. I mean, if you were doing, if you had one gesture, if you're playing charades and you yeah. wanted to do like Dracula, one of the first things you do would be to like, you'd wrap your arm over your nose, over your face, and just your eyes would show that's Dracula. Yeah. And that's thanks to Bela. Bela. My blood now flows through her veins. She will live through the centuries to come. As I have lived. Having done performance after performance after performance, he had Dracula down. He knew Dracula. Mm -hmm. He was not. He a, was Dracula. Yeah. Lon Chaney was the first choice for Dracula. And there's literal books with big sections all about the back and forth and who wanted what. And Todd Browning did want Bela, though he wanted Lon Chaney first, but he died um, yeah. around this time. So that wasn't happening. And then it was like which studio had really wanted to do Dracula and who didn't want to do it and who had the rights to it. And I ran into a friend of mine who knows more about classic movies than anyone I know as he was riding his like vintage bicycle or reproduction bike. I didn't ask. He's a bicyclist? How modern? <laughs> as a Brian Rohan. Mm. And we just had a like long discussion about Dracula by the curbside. And he clued me into uh, this book here. I feel like you've mentioned him as a resource a few times on our podcast. I have. That you've gone to him specifically. Because he's got the goods. Yeah. And I just happened to like see him. I was uh, in Toluca Lake and he was like biking past me. <laughs> and I was just like, hey, uh, what can you tell me about Dracula? And he's like, well, you got to read Hollywood Gothic by uh, David J. Skull. Which gets into how Bela helped Middleman, like kind of helped broker the deal in between the Widow Stoker and Universal Studios. Unfortunately... While he was like, I'm helping them out. They're going to give me the part. And they did. But all of his enthusiasm for getting the part and letting them know he wanted the part. All that did was say, hey, we can probably get this guy for, uh, for kind of cheap. You mm. know I mean? And the cheapness of Dracula is as much a part of the movie Dracula as anything else. Because it was the Depression. Mm. At Universal Studios, the realities of the Depression were setting in as they were going into sound. And... Was horror the way to go? I don't know. What am I going to do? Bet all my money on it or just some of my money on it? <laughs> and like, well, we can get this Hungarian actor. He knows all the lines. And he, he really wants it. I gave all of me. I was greater than any real vampire. So a lot of things had to be trimmed down. No chase back to Transylvania. Instead, they just chase him next door. And things like the sea voyage mm -hmm. that Draco takes, which in the novel is a great, just like, short story on its own. Oh, yeah. When, when they get into, like, first the newspaper and then the captain's log. Oh, yeah. As all of the crew start dying. Yeah, shit gets dark. Yeah, in the 31, just the silhouette of the captain that tied himself, oh. which is from the book. Yeah. Tied himself while clutching, like, a rosary to the wheel as it came in as a ghost ship, as a shipwreck. That image from the book hasn't left me just it's so dark and the idea that more and more men are disappearing yeah. he's afraid of like succumbing to whatever and so he ties himself to and, and it's Not reminiscent even. of tying yourself to the boat so that you don't go to the like sirens kind of like that and he thought because like his first mate goes below deck and then runs out and says, like, the sea is a better fate for me. Yes. And jumps overboard. And he doesn't want to commit suicide the way he saw his mate doing. So he was like, I'm not going that route. Well, he then assumes, like, oh, he must have killed all those people because he's clearly mad. Mm -hmm. But no, there's still one person left on the ship with him. But that doesn't make it into his captain's log. So you just have to, like, imagine what happened. 
It's very, very creepy. But we're cutting corners here at Universal Studios. So a silent film, The Stormbreaker, was used. I wondered. Yeah, mm-hmm. so all that footage. Now, as the Spanish version was made, and you're like, hey, if you're trying to save money, why are you making two movies? Yeah, they needed to get into what they refer to in the documentary as the Latin American markets. Dubbing was not yet reliable. There were also theaters that were still silent, projected silent. Right. It hadn't switched to sound, so a silent version was also made with, like, title cards, which back in the day, you switch out the title cards for another language, and you're done, you're done. Mm -hmm. But now with sound, they have to figure out what to do, and one of the answers was, at night, a second crew will come in, and then they'll do the same scene that they did during the day. I read that they were able to kind of, like, look at the dailies. Yeah, that must have been a big turnaround. When I read that, I wondered how true it was, because I was like, it's not like today when you could just watch the playback immediately. It but maybe have had it was a lab just... on site? Maybe. Now, at any rate... actors weren't allowed to watch the dailies. It's rumored that the crew was looking at the way that the yeah. English-speaking crew had shot something and said, ah, okay, we can do that a little better. Yeah, well, you spend all day trying to figure out a shot, and then these guys come in and just build on what you just did. Right. You know, it's like, oh, we got this great shot of the staircase. And they're like, well, thanks. We're going to push in on the staircase with this crane we've got. Mm-hmm. Now, it looks like they've duplicated certain shots that are like wide shots or establishing shots. But in fact, what those are, those are never the exact same shots. Those are outtakes. Because that way, both versions get the negative. No one's got a copy of a copy. So while it looks like the same coach going down the same road, and it is, yeah. it's a different shot. Interesting. I wondered that about, like, at the very beginning when he's coming into the town. I was like, oh, that shot looks the same. But it's just another take is what you're telling me. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. As you know, Kat, the Phantom of the Opera sets stayed up for quite some time at mm-hmm. Universal Studios. And because they had these awesome opera house sets just sitting there, the whole scene at the opera was created. That's where Dracula meets Dr. Seward, who's like his next door neighbor at Carfax Abbey. And that's where he meets Seward's daughter, Mina. And what, what? It's her, uh, it's her friend, Lucy. Mm. Now, we don't know a ton about Lucy, except she's got short hair, which at the time was sort of code for a little more like, a little bit more of a wild girl. Maybe a little more uh, quick to uh, smoke a cigarette and... Hang with the boys. Uh-huh. I'm a modern 30s woman. And I think they end the scene with him kind of looking at Lucy like, nice girls, I'll take them both. <laughs> mm. <laughs> There's something otherworldly about that man. He gives me the shivers. Oh, yes. Me too. Lucy does not last long. In the book, she lasts a lot longer. There's, like, many different feedings. Mm-hmm. And her, her suitors are all concerned about her. And they give her transfusions. And then she starts to feel better. And then, oh, no, we left her alone for too long without garlic around her neck. You know? Yeah. And Van Helsing gets called in. Mm-hmm. I have devoted my lifetime to the study of many strange things. Little known facts which the world is perhaps better off for not knowing. He's at the sanitarium where Mina lives because her father runs it. So in this one, uh, Dr. Seward's not a suitor. He's Mina's father. And he's taken charge of Renfield, who was found on the ghost ship as, like, the only person alive. He's been spending his time eating flies and spiders, which is where we find Renfield in the book. 
Yes, except that in the book, he's not just a guy who's just <laughs> making weird noises. Yeah. In the book, he's like, may I please have a cat now? Yeah. I've grown tired of spiders and flies. Like, he's asking for increasingly large animals to eat. Right. He gets um, as far as sparrows. It's gross. But he does ask, there's a whole conversation about a cat. Oh, if I mightn't have a cat, might I have a kitten? It's a whole thing. Yeah. It's very disturbing. Redfield seems to have run of the place. In the Spanish version, it actually shows the bars. Like, he's got, like, super strength. And that's how he, like, gets out of his cell. But if you take that away, it looks like he's just roaming free. That's how they treated mental patients back in the day. They just pop in and out like a neighbor in a sitcom. Isn't this a strange conversation for men who aren't crazy? Renfield, you're compelling me to put you in a straitjacket. You forget, Doctor, that madmen have great strength. So Van Helsing believes that Lucy was killed by a vampire, and he thinks Renfield might be that vampire until the uh, strange Dracula comes over. And he's like, I heard Mina wasn't doing very well. Just came over to, uh, you know, wish her well. I'll see you later. <laughs> and that's when Van Helsing looks with the cigarette case and sees that he casts no reflection. And then it's like... Dracula, he is your vampire. But surely, Professor. A vampire casts no reflection in the glass. That is why Dracula smashed the mirror. I don't mean to be rude, but that's the sort of thing I'd expect one of the patients here to say. Yes, and that is what your English doctors would say. Your police. The strength of the vampire is that people will not believe in him. The actor who plays... Van Helsing in the movie, Edward Van Sloan. Sure. Yeah, I forgot slash forgot that he was Van Helsing on stage. Yeah, so him and Bela and maybe Dr. Seward also. I mean, a lot of these guys were, were stage actors. Mm -hmm. I know I'd sent you the trivia that Bela Gosi and did we say his name yet? Dwight Fry? We didn't. Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry. As Renfield who would then go on to the Frankenstein films as uh, Fritz, later to be replaced with Igor, who was being played by Bela Gosi. But he, he certainly made his mark. He was a contract player at Universal for a yeah. time. Who, like Bela, got sort of pigeonholed into horror. And the bit of a trivia that I think I, I texted you was that Fry and Lugosi were in a play together called The Devil in the Cheese, <laughs> 1926 comedy. Don't know what The Devil in the Cheese was about, but it sounds pretty funny. It does. We should restate, I will restate, that, yeah. you know, Universal wanted to capitalize on the spanish-speaking audiences so they determined they would mount an entire second production of dracula film it simultaneously at night on those sets yep. um i really enjoyed Eng what... english crew left at six spanish crew started filming at eight and i wrote down they had dinner at midnight i i really enjoyed what lupita tavar said she was the star she played mina Mina renamed Eva, and I think she was only like 17 or so. She was 17, but she um, th she's interviewed in this Road to Dracula documentary, but she says that, you know, it felt like they were keeping the hours of vampires, you know? Indeed. Uh, which is really cute and insightful. But 
I could only find online, I could only find a non-subtitled version, so I just sort of watched it. Okay. But it was an interesting experiment because I had just watched the original in English, but I think even if I hadn't, I would have been able to follow much of the plot because it's so visual, it's so close to silent film that really so much of it visually does the storytelling for you. Spanish or English, the movie had no score. Yeah, that's right. They hadn't really uh, worked out. Do audiences even want to hear music? Which is so interesting. Would it just confuse them? I, I thought a lot about this, and I just think music was such a huge deal in silent films because would, that would have told the story. Yeah. So the fact that they would go to the talkies and all that would fly completely out the window because they were like, well... They're talking now, so we don't need music. It boggles my mind, and, and people I are going to wonder where the music's it. coming from. Like, is there a radio in the room? But did they? They didn't wonder it before. No, but like the music was always in the theater with them. <sighs> I still, you it know? still blows. It was a live accompaniment. It really goes to show you what a new thing sound films yeah. were. That because people were talking, they were like, "No, nah, we'll have some music at the beginning, but then no more music." That's it. Yeah, when he goes in the opera mind. house. Yeah. There's music there. Because it made sense. The end. It's wild. Venga. Aquí. Detente. No moverás tu mano hasta que yo lo quiera. They, even in the Spanish version, they would have the same marks on the floor where they stood for the, the previous scene. Wow. Now, that wasn't all the time because there are, like several notable shots where they would compose things kind of differently. They would go outside the window and shoot in. So when Renfield goes to the window and like the three wives are behind him, who were, um, all the ladies were more, um, scantily dressed. Mm, that didn't mm-hmm. they had, uh, the studio censors to worry about quite so much with the Spanish language version, but that you could see them like creeping up behind him from outside the window, looking in, which was, I think pretty effective. Very cool. And the third reel of it, so this whole chunk got lost, it got like, like nitrate decomposition, and the only available print of it was in Havana for the longest time. And you can tell it like the quality changes because they're no longer working off of like the negative, they're just working off of this print that had been in Havana for like 75 years. But if it wasn't for that one copy that existed, really no one would watch it, it would just be this incomplete curiosity. That you would watch a fragment of and go, oh, that must have been neat. Wow. But now you can you can watch the whole movie. Yo nunca bebo vino. Only the guy playing Dracula, who was Carlos... Carlos Pablo something? I just wrote Carlos parentheses Dracula. We shall find him. Well, he was the only one who was allowed to watch the dailies of the actors. Because they pretty much had everything else that the English language had. Carlos Villarias. There you go. Renfield is Pablo Alvarez Rubio. Renfield. For some reason, they put the D Do in they? There. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Carlos Villarias was Dracula. Soy Dracula. No podía usted ser más oportuno. And special effects-wise, they were on equal footing. Sometimes better. They had some really good fog. Yeah, really good cool camera fog. Moves. And they actually had Dracula standing up out of his coffin. Whereas he always got out of the coffin off screen. Because really, that's kind of a cumbersome thing, and you want to be really suave, and he's in a tuxedo. Mm-hmm. So how do you, like, suavely get out of a box? Right. They cracked it. Yeah. You know, and, like, fog preceded him, and, like, yep. lit fog. And it's look, cool. It looks awesome. La sangre de Drácula corre ya por las venas de la señorita Seward. 
Seguirá ella viviendo por toda la eternidad lo mismo que he vivido yo. In the Spanish version, they had every asset that the American version had, except for Bela Lugosi. Mm. The English version has Bela Lugosi. Yeah. So if you're ever chiming in on the big debate between which like, one's better, which one's better, which one's technically better, which one's edited better, which one you know moves the story forward better through camera work, it all comes down to the English version had Bela. I came across that debate several times in my research. The conclusion I came to was. I don't understand why we have to be talking about it in terms of better or not better. I take your point about Bela, but, you know, I think both of them are really interesting in their own ways. The Renfield in the Spanish version is has really a cackle. He's a lot wilder. It's just an interesting, different take on it. So they're just you, different. You follow Renfield's arc a bit more in, in the Spanish one. He's, yeah. he's got at least... Well, in addition to just more dialogue, I think, in one scene where you, you get into his character a little more... And you're like, oh, yeah, this is a guy we were following for a while. He was the star. And then we kind of shuffled him off to the side once he got to London. I think I saw someone online speak about the Spanish language version as like your favorite video game or something. And you've discovered extra rooms yeah. or I don't know if that's well, quite how he but it's just being what, what if you got see. to explore the Overlook Hotel a little more? Yeah, it is such a peek into film history and culture and the business and all of it. And I find them both really delightful. Yeah. But yes, Bela Lugosi is... Uh, but one had Bela Lugosi. Legendary, for sure. And he's the final collaborator to put his stamp on the creation of Dracula, which then set the tone for all future Draculas. The book did its job. The plays did their job. The screenwriters, the director, the set designers, a lot of great making spiderwebs out of guns that shot rubber cement. They all did great. But the big heavy hitter is Bela Lugosi. You know what didn't stick around in the zeitgeist? Possums and armadillos coming out of coffins. You know what Thank did? Bela Lugosi's performance as Dracula. Dracula never ends. I don't know whether I shall call it a fortune or a cause, but it never ends. Dracula is the only picture in existence which is revived in every city in America every year. Back to Minutia. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't like part of the Hayes Code that you couldn't have rats, but Fan of the Opera had a rat catcher scene a few years before the production of Dracula, and audiences were so like reviled by rats on the screen that the studio was just like, no rats! No rats in a universal picture. Rats. 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 Found. Millions of them. There is at least one rat in the Spanish version. They do keep a possum. It looks like an outtake because it looks like that possum just straight up falls off a coffin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, we're going to take the good take with the possum. You get the one where he falls off the coffin. I also sent like but, a gif of that, the what I thought was a bee yeah. coming out of a coffin to our mutual friend Daniel, co-host of Welcome to Deadcast, the Goosebumps podcast. And Indeed. he was like, that's actually a potato bug. And I was like, well... Color me stupid. That not, not a bee. Special not a bee. effect doesn't quite work because it's supposed to be like a giant insect coming out of a coffin. Oh, is it? I Isn't just assumed. It? I just assumed it was a tiny bug out of its own coffin. Yeah, a teeny tiny bug coffin. Yeah, I think I'm not saying it makes sense, but I'm saying that's what my brain. I think did it's supposed with to be it. like a regular size coffin, and they're like, "Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna make the the coffin real small so the bug looks like giant." Oh wow! Yeah, no, I didn't get that. Giant bugs. 
giant spiders, giant grasshoppers. Who would believe such nonsense? Unfortunately, one of the um, plot holes in the 1931 Bale Goes to Dracula is they never killed Lucy. Mm. Lucy has been established as being a child killer or just biter, never actually kills the kids, just runs around sucking blood from children. In the book? And the movie. Yeah. yeah. Oh, in, oh, in, in uh -huh. the book. Oh, there's a whole great scene. She's the bloofer lady. Yeah, it's which this is whole like weird thing. I had to look it up. Beautiful like, lady. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. This well, beautiful woman on the streets at night snatching children. With the promises of chocolates and Ooh. candy. It's yeah. really fun. Well, with, Newspaper with, reports. That's oh, a fun part of the book. Van Helsing doesn't do it himself. He brings her suitors because he's going to need their help to catch Dracula. So he's like, I can't just chop off a corpse's head and say, see, she was a vampire. They've actually got to see her walking and talking. So he takes them there and then like, they're like, put a stake in her heart. <laughs> and he makes like her fiance do it. Oof. Like, that's going to be your job, buddy. Yeah. You've got to drive the stake in her heart. It's a, you know, I know I say that it's mostly adventure after a certain point. But there are moments but of that's a real horror, horror mm -hmm. moment. My God. Now she's dead. No, she's not. She's alive? She's Nosferatu. She's Italian? So the Spanish version does have, like, right before the climax, that's what they're doing outside, and they see Dracula going to Carfax Abbey. They are coming from the graveyard just having presumably killed Lucy. Mm -hmm. They're coming out. Jonathan Harker looks pretty worse for wear. And Van Helsing, Spanish Van Helsing is like, ah, buck up, son. You did the right thing, basically. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, there's doings afoot at Carfax Abbey. Let's go there. And then the scene mimics the English version. Our only chance of saving Miss Nina's life is to find the hiding place of Dracula's living corpse and to drive a stake through its heart. Let's get to the end of Dracula, which is he takes Mina back to Carfax Abbey. Mina, who's becoming more and more vampire-like as things go on to where she, off camera, tries to bite Jonathan Harker's neck. And that actress, whose name we have not mentioned, Helen Chandler as Mina. Um, she's very good. She's very beautiful. Yeah. And when she's, like, being a vampire despite herself, she's quite good at that. Now, again, in the Spanish version, they actually show her biting the guy's neck. In the English version, she just kind of goes off frame, which is sexier. Well, it depends what you're into, <laughs> honestly. Your eyes, they look at me so strangely. Mina. Mina, you're... No, Mina, no. But at the end of both, Dracula's taking Mina, or Eva, back to Carfax Abbey to basically complete the vampire process and having her like line a box also. But the sun comes up too soon. And he's got to go into a box by himself. Van Helsing and Harker are the great vampire killers now. Uh, so it's just the two of them looking for something to kill Dracula with. So it's like, find me a piece of wood and something to drive it in with. And then they pop open Dracula's lid. He's sleeping the sleep of the damned. He takes a stake and starts driving it in. You don't see this because it's 1931. Instead, you just hear like... <laughs> out of Bela Lugosi, which when this was re-released in 1938 and things had gotten more stringent as far as what you could show, it was removed. <laughs> but for the silent film back in 1931, the one that they released to theaters that didn't yet have sound, because you couldn't just rely on thump, 
to express that Dracula was being killed, there is actually like a long shot of Dracula being killed that did at one point exist, but it's been lost to the ages. So it wasn't like a close-up of like a stake going into a heart, but you got to see it because you couldn't hear it. But, oh, uh, the screaming was put back in for the, the DVD. So now we can hear it just like they did back in 31. Right. <laughs> Mina like clutches her heart. Her psychic connection with Dracula has been broken, implying she's not going to be a vampire anymore. Jonathan runs over to her and he's like, hey, babe, let's live happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Let's go up this giant staircase now to the sound of distant bells because things are going to be okay. Right. Watch your step. Renfield's corpse is kind of around here because he died in the last scene. Yeah. So that's the way it ends. Or did it? Because Dracula's screams aren't the only thing they took out when it got re-released in like 38, like they paired it with Frankenstein and put it back in the theaters. They also cut out Van Helsing, which this was part of the play. At the end of the play, the actor playing Van Helsing, like during like the curtain call, like when they all come out and bow, what got cut is Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing coming out and saying, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen, just a word before you go. We I do know this. Sorry, yeah. I'll let you start over, but yes. No, tell, you're going to read it. <clears throat> just a moment, ladies and gentlemen, just a word before you go. We hope the memories of Dracula and Renfield won't give you bad dreams. So just a word of reassurance. When you get home tonight and the lights have been turned out and you are afraid to look behind the curtains and you see a face appear at the window, why, just pull yourself together and remember that after all, there are such things. Wow. Wow. Right? Way to really drive the steak home. Flap, 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 flap. Now flap your arms up, flap your arms back. Shake your left hip, shake your right hip. Shimmy, shake and shimmy your arms. Shake and shimmy your hips. Now you're doing the drag. Oh, flap your wings and fly around. Fly to the ceiling and hang upside down. Take off with a shimmy, shimmy, shimmy. And a flap, a flap, a flap. Now you're doing the track. All right. Cat. Marshall. We're not done. No, we're not. Whatever you do after we finish an episode, I don't know if you like purge all of your notes off your phone or what. Hang on to them because... When we meet again, we're going to go into the legacy of Draco. What what did everything that we, um, everything we talked about inspire in the many years to come? The different iterations of Draco. How did the baseline properties that we've talked about here yeah. become immortalized further yes. in other films, uh, primarily yeah. films? Yeah. For the character, which I think I read was like the only more iconic character is... Sherlock Holmes? I guess. And, yeah. I mean... Or, yeah, I've never had any Sherlock Holmes cereal. I don't know why I count Chocula as really the meter stick by which I measure pop culture penetration. Because it's delicious. Yes, and... <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, is it. there a Sherlock Holmes character on, like, Sesame Street? Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there is. Flap, 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 flap. Now fly up there and look around. See all those people down on the ground go. <laughs>
we hope that uh, if you're a fan of the 1931 Dracula and the book and really the road to Dracula, as the documentary is called, that all the stuff that it took to make it, or if you're just a fan of the final product of the 1931 Dracula, I hope you got something out of this podcast. Maybe you learned some stuff you didn't know. I say we definitely came out of this experience with a greater appreciation for a thing that was so ingrained. Dracula is so a part of pop culture, if not culture, culture, Mm -hmm. that you don't really feel the need to go back and visit Dracula. You don't really feel the need to go back and visit the Bela Lugosi Dracula because it feels like you've already seen it, even though you haven't. Oh, certainly. You know, Mm -hmm. you're like, I get it. Yeah, blah, 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 Dracula. What new is there for me? Right. Well, hopefully if you've never seen it, but just sort of always felt that you never really had to, maybe now you can uh, give it a look. That's how I felt before I researched for this podcast. Yeah. And I'm so glad I watched it. It's so uh, ubiquitous. Yes. Yeah. That's the right word. Great. You know, it's like, why should I watch it? I can't get away from it. You know, especially on Halloween. You can't get away from Dracula. You don't really feel that it's something like you should even have to seek out because it just keeps finding you. But uh, it does take a little bit of effort to go back to where it all started. And um, folks, uh, I say make the effort. Get to know the Bela Lugosi Dracula. And get to know the Bram Stoker Dracula. It's not just one of those things you visit to appreciate what started something else. It still holds up on its own. Oh yeah, it's thrilling, truly. Yeah. There's parts that are long-winded. Yes. Granted. But I think it's worth the work. But it brings you in enough that when you get scenes like Lucy's decapitation, yeah. you're right there with it. Oh, yeah. And what are the odds that you listen to a horror movie podcast and you don't like vampires? Right. I, I'd, I'd say everyone listening is uh, pretty on board with vampires. Yeah. So we're going to do you a double favor in our next episode. More Dracula. And in the meantime, if you are just itching for more vampire content, the second episode of Boys and Ghouls ever has vampire content for you. We did an episode on vampire brothels. That was our second episode ever. Yeah, we were getting real we, we did, deep we, cut there. We've done The Lost Boys. We've done Fright Night. Salem's Lot. Got Salem's a lot. We got a lot more blood-sucking content for you yeah. to tide you over to quench your thirst. In the meantime if you're so inclined. Yeah, and this might be our first time really looking at Dracula, but it was definitely not our first time looking at vampires. So um, if you enjoy what you've heard, find us on social media. We're out there on Twitter, Boys and Ghouls. Same for Pinterest, Boys and Ghouls podcast for the Instagram. Importantly, if you like what you hear, rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or whatever app you're listening on. Please do, people. And drop us a line at boysandghouls at gmail. And go ahead and give uh, some of our other episodes a listen if you're a first-time listener. In addition to vampires, you'll find a, a lot out there. We've been uh, dealing in horror for uh, coming on six years. Mm-hmm. My goodness. So I bid you all good evening. And until next time. And uh, anything you want to add there, Kat? Beware the moon. Beware. Beware.